You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're going to be in Acts uh, 17, 16 through 34. If, uh, if, you, if you can and are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, 16 through 34 says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there uh, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out in their midst and some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Happy New Year again. Welcome to 2020. Um, Yeah, amen. It's cool for, you know, I was joking with someone uh, earlier this morning that we were just talking about how the years passed and then we realized that he was old enough and I was young enough to be his son, and so it was really depressing. So if you're experiencing that here in 2020, I apologize. Uh, but either way, it's another year. It's good, right? It's a good thing. So, um, and, and what better way to start the year off uh, talking about Providence, who we are, and way of reminder, we want to uh, talk about our mission statement. Hopefully you saw it when you walked in. There's a big sign that says, uh, to make the gospel unignorable in our city. This is who we are, who we want to be, and we want to take three weeks to explain what that means Uh, explain why we chose a word that's not really in your dictionary. Uh, It should be not ignorable, but we decided to make it unignorable because you can't ignore a wrong word if you're type A. So 
it's helpful. But yeah, we want to explain that and walk through that. And, and today I get the absolute pleasure of just preaching the gospel. Okay, so our first sermon is just, what is the gospel? Um, and so we say we want to make that unignorable in our city. What does that mean? And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably have a working and good and biblical definition of what the gospel is. And my prayer is simply not to change your definition, but just to expound this text, uh, what it means for us and, and what it says um, about the gospel. Because we want to be a people that are sharing this gospel. I love, we're not going to read it today, but earlier on in this text, uh, Paul and a guy named Silas and some others are in Thessalonica and they're preaching the gospel and uh, you know, people are getting so angry. Uh, because of like just the, the impact the gospel is having on their society, uh, they say they, they basically just form this huge riot and they bring some of these guys before a judge and say these guys are turning the world upside down. Do something about them, right? And then they always like kind of sneak away and escape and continue to spread the gospel. But we want to be a people who spread this gospel and make it uh, unignorable. Now, the subject of the gospel uh, is so simple that a toddler can understand it and believe it. And it's so complex that we will spend eternity trying to grasp it. And so the gospel is this complex thing. So I say that ahead of time just in case you wanted to boot me off stage and throw tomatoes, which you're welcome to do that. But uh, I'm not going to give necessarily like this definition of the gospel that's going to complete every nuance of the gospel. But, but rather, I just want to be faithful to Paul's presentation here and what this means uh, for us. And so I use the example. It's like... a when I, so I'm from West Virginia. You can see this right here, okay? Proud of it. That's the WV logo, okay? Marco was joking earlier that I should just cut out the hole right here in my jacket so you can always see it. Uh, but West Virginia, if you didn't know it was a state, it is a state. I don't mean Western Virginia. I mean West Virginia, which was uh, added in uh, 1836, okay? And so uh, anyways, that's beside the point. The point is I, I love the state I'm from. I think it's the most majestic and beautiful place uh, you've ever seen. Once you lay eyes upon it, it's like finding a unicorn. It's amazing, okay? And so when my wife and I first got married, I always talked about West Virginia. I love it. Uh, and I described it to her and all the nuanced beauty of it. And when we got there for the first time, to my surprise, she was not impressed, okay? She <laughs> didn't like the food. She didn't like most of it. My uncles have mullets. I mean, it was just a, it was a very confusing time for all of us. But uh, I... <laughs> I say it to say, not that the gospel has weak points of mullets, but that, uh, it's just hard to explain things sometimes. And so um, we're just going to focus, what does Paul say here? What does God want us to understand here in the book of Acts chapter 17? So that's where we're going. Um, as, as Ty said, uh, you know, we, when we talk about an unignorable providence, that we want to talk about why we should treasure, share, and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our vision is simply to make the gospel unignorable in our city. Uh, we want to make disciples that are devoted to the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. And so uh, to that end, I'd love to pray before we jump into the text and we'll get started. So if you could bow your heads with me. Father, we are humbled at your word right now. Your, your word witnesses that we should tremble when we enter your word. We shouldn't take it lightly we shouldn't think we know it all, but we should humbly, under your mighty hand, tremble. And so, God, we pray for that demeanor as we enter your word, that humility. God, I know we've heard the gospel a thousand and one times, and God, may we hear it again like it's the first time we've ever heard it. 
May we hear it with passion and joy and understanding. God, by the power of your spirit, would you change us and move us to you in your word. We pray this all in in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I just want to point out this a long uh, portion of scripture. I'll try my best not to... uh, get too boring in here, but I just want to explain, there's really three main points about the gospel that I want to encourage us in this, this morning, three truths about the gospel. So let's, let's read again just that first little portion, starting in verse 16. It says this, uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for Timothy and some of his posse to arrive. Uh, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what that, um, sorry, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know more we wish to know therefore what these things mean now all the athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new and i read all that because i want to explain a little bit about athens so athens uh, was unique mainly in one way and that was it was pretty much the intellectual and cultural center of the greek people And so they were well known for the wisdom, right? The philosophers that came from these guys, like you look at guys like Plato, Socrates, these guys were bred out of Athens and the culture of Athens. And um, they they had tons of stuff. I mean, art, it was like a huge art center, right? They had all these uh, elaborate, like beautiful altars to different gods, as we're gonna read in a second. They even had an altar just to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. Like, sorry, okay, just the guy that we don't even know of that you're out there. We got one for you too. They had like this just majestic architecture, like the the Parthenon, all these like temples to different gods and goddesses that they believed in. And so uh, this this place, you can tell, it's like a lot of these men of the place just, they did nothing with their time except just telling and hearing new things. Like they just love the intellectual stuff. And they had all these idols and all these things there. And so when Paul is there waiting on his boys, he is, it says, provoked in his spirit. He looks around, he sees the idolatry of this place that's supposed to be so wise and so smart. And all he sees is these false gods. He calls them in another place, demons, right? He's worshiping demons. They don't know what they're worshiping. Um, And he's provoked within himself. And if we want to make the gospel unignorable in our city, we must be a provoked people, a provoked people. That's what we wanna be as providence, provoked not only of the idolatry of our city, of our neighbors, of uh, our country, of the world, but also the idols of our own hearts, right? We wanna be a provoked people. Now, in talking about idolatry, you're probably thinking, okay, uh, I don't have a lots of little gods or statues or things in my house, so therefore I don't worship idols. But Um, If you've heard idolatry talked about, you know, I I would argue that idolatry is a matter of the heart, right? I think that um, we could uh, hold anything as idols, whether that be food or stuff or a way of believing or a person or you can fill in the blank. We'll talk about that more 
uh, in just a moment. But uh, the point is that this is what's kind of happening in Athens. You got Paul, he's preaching, he's provoked. So he starts talking to the Jews in the synagogue who don't believe in Christ and the resurrection. Then he begins to talk to the Epicureans. The Epicureans were uh, these philosophers that basically kind of, the best way to describe it maybe is that they, they did not look at God as like powerful. God was kind of like us. He was very removed, like had no like desire to be involved with human life kind of thing, right? He was just kind of very removed. And so they thought the best end of life, if God's removed and, you know, he doesn't care and we're kind of equal with God, so there's not really no fear of judgment or anything, then we should spend our whole lives trying to avoid pain, loss, fear, and just find as much pleasure as we can in everything in the world. And so they were devoted uh, relentlessly to finding pleasure in this world and avoiding fear and pain at all costs. And then you also have the Stoics who were kind of a little bit opposite. They believed themselves to pretty much be on equal standing with God, but in a virtuous way, okay? And they, they thought like um, a little bit different about God. They, they thought he was kind of like, the best way I can describe it, he's like the spirit of the earth, okay? It's like what you'd find in a yoga class, okay? It's like uh, God is in all of us. We are all God. God is everything. God is in that apple. It's all good. We're all part of nature. We all equal one, right? It's kind of like that, okay? That's how the Epicureans kind of viewed uh, in an abstract sense, maybe life. And so you're probably thinking, wow, those are some crazy views, right? I mean, but if you look at our culture, uh, example, like if you've been to a yoga class or, you know, you've been to some like tea ceremony where the tea brings you into emptiness and then you know God, or uh, people try to find pleasure and avoid pain, right? I mean, that's what the suburbs is built for, right? Let's get as far away from the city as we can. Let's have really nice houses. Let's keep everyone away, right? Um, and and it's, just, it's just, it's so easy, right? You can look at this. So there is idols in our culture, make no mistake. There's idols in your heart, make no mistake. We, we worship things that are not God. And as John Piper says in his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And he's got Habakkuk uh, 2.14 in mind where it says, uh, basically that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth like the water covers the sea. Right, And so because the glory of the Lord does not cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, because we worship false idols, John Piper makes the argument, that's why missions exist. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so my, my first point about the gospel is that uh, the gospel crushes idolatry. It crushes it. The gospel is not simply there for self-fulfillment. Uh, so what, what I mean by that is, is we're not saying uh, man, people are just, which this is true, but we're not saying this is why the gospel exists. People are kind of miserable, and if they just had God, then they would be really fulfilled, right? Um, you may say, like, you may heard people say, like, man, you got a lot of things going for you, but, I mean, if you just, if you just became a Christian, man, things would be so much better, right? Uh, and that's true in a very real sense, but the main point of the gospel is not like this self-fulfillment where I just got to find the deepest joy I can. Also, the main point of the gospel is not just to kind of bind your wounds, or, or you've maybe heard people say, it's like a crutch for those who just really need to pick me up till they get to death, right? It's like they need something to just make them less miserable. But the gospel is much more than that. The gospel crushes idolatry. As the Bible says, God is a jealous God. His people will worship no other God except him. He will be worshiped in all of the earth, right? And so, that's how we should view idolatry. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, um, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, 
that is really your God, your functional Savior. That is a very simple but profound thing. Whatever your heart clings to, whatever your heart confides in for all protection, all hope, all joy, this is your God. This is, if it's not the true God, your idol, right? Um, A few questions maybe to consider uh, for your own heart would be, uh, where do you run to when you experience suffering? That's a good question, right? Like when things go wrong in your life, like what's your flinch? You know, where do you go for that comfort, at least in the first place? This could be an idol. It's a good question to ask yourself. Maybe another question would be, what is something that you just can't do without? Now, I know for a majority of you, it's coffee, all right? I join you in that with, with truthfulness. But what can't you go without? Seriously, you know, what, what's something that you feel like, man, if that's taken away from you, maybe it has been taken away from you, and you just feel this empty hole and loss. Maybe another question, and maybe the most important question might be, without having to muster up some excitement and happiness, what just genuinely makes you happy in a split second without thinking about it? What makes you happy? Not with effort, like I know this should make me happy, so I'm gonna make it make me happy, which I think that's a good thing spiritually for pursuing God, but what just makes you happy like that? You don't even, subconsciously, you don't even think about it. You're just so happy about that. This could be an idol. It's an important question to ask yourself. These are very important questions, and following the path of these questions would most assuredly lead us to our idols. And once again, the point is that Paul's provoked. There's something that does not sit right with him, that angers him, that makes him jealous for the glory of God when he walks through Athens. And to make the gospel unanorable, it takes that in your own heart and in the world around you to say something's got to change about this. So that's my first point. Uh, another point is in the text we read is it's really cool to see too that the, the gospel uh, is not bound by cultural or ethnic boundaries. Uh, I love that. The gospel is for all people of all times in all places and will always be fruitful where it goes, right? And it can always be said. I love that Paul, we're gonna see this when he talks about the gospel, but he does such a beautiful way at just taking them from this unknown God that they worship in their cultural context and then just weaving the gospel through what they believe and pointing out their false idols and pointing them to God. And so the gospel has no boundaries. So that's the the first point. Uh, Point number two, is that the gospel is God-centered. I wanna start in verse 22, and I just wanna read a few. We'll just kind of talk about this line by line, but let's look at verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so, uh, like we talked about earlier, you know, just in case they miss one, they have this altar that says to the unknown God that we don't even know about. And, and so Paul, what he's going to do here is he's saying this God that you say is unknown, this God, the only God, can be known. And so he's about to aim right at their idols with God focused on his mind uh, about their false gods. And so it's, it's God-centered. We're going to look through a few things he says about God. Uh, the first thing is, is that he mentions uh, that God is the sovereign creator and sustainer. Now, Paul does something that's really key to understanding the gospel, and we'll explain it more as we go through it, but Paul begins with God. He begins with God. See, the gospel 
cannot begin with us. It can't begin with satisfaction. It begins with God. And we're gonna talk about this a little more, but uh, I would maybe argue, okay, the best mode of evangelism may not be to ask the question, well, where do you wanna go when you die, right? Like my three-year-old can answer that pretty smoothly. Do you want hell where you're on fire or do you want heaven where it's fun? Uh, I'll choose fun, please, right? I mean, it's really simple. Like we, and I don't mean to like be just about that. I think there is a, 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 a wisdom in talking about hell and the realities of hell and the anguish of hell is forever. But it's like, we can't lead with that. It's like, if you've ever driven I-10, it's like anywhere towards Florida, okay? You see two kinds of uh, billboards. The first one is a very well-dressed man that if you've been in an SUV accident, he really wants to help you out, okay? For some reason, he's like really good and he wants to help you out and get lots of money. The, the second billboard you'll see is like this billboard that's like in half. The first half has like this like snowy, glassy looking color and the other half is like fire. And it will say something like heaven or hell, question mark, or like, where are you gonna go when you die? You know, uh, and that's all good. And I hope that does provoke people to think about hell because I think that's one of the, the clearest, most sobering thoughts you can have is hell, right? And, and the torment of that. But you gotta go beyond that, right? He doesn't start with that. He starts with God. Who is this God that is unknown to you? That's where he starts. So first thing, verse 24, God is the sovereign creator and sustainer. Let's read through that together. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the absolute sovereign ruler, creator, sustainer of the entire universe. That's what he leads with. God created everything. He's in control of everything. Everything exists by him, through him, and for him. This God is not a small God. This God is not served by humans as if he needed something, right? God does not need us. He doesn't live in the temples that you built here in Athens. He doesn't need a house and a shelter that we provide for him with our hands. He doesn't need to be built by us out of wood and metal and stones. He does not need us to feed him. He's not hungry saying, please give me food, right? God doesn't even need us to stroke his ego. God is totally and absolutely, eternally self-sufficient. God exists for no one but himself and exists by no one but himself. That's what Paul leads with in the gospel message is that God is God. He is huge. He is powerful. He is mighty. And he can be known. Second thing is that God has purposed and planned the nations and history so that we might find him. I love this. is mind-blowing. This is what he says, starting in verse 26. Um, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, which is quoting one of their own poets. I love that he does that. As even some of your own poets have said, once again, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So 
This is a crazy reality. But not only is God like sustaining us, he created us, he sustains us like the very breath you have. Each breath you breathe is sustained by the power, as, as the word of God says, the word of his might, the power of God is sustaining you, it's sustaining the universe. Not only that, but God is sovereignly moving and planning throughout all of history and all the ages, all of the nations, their boundaries, when they're formed, when they will fall. And I would even say individually you, where you were born, where you will live, where you will die, how you will die. I can go on and on, right? God has planned it in his sovereign, mighty power so that you might feel your way towards him and might find him. It's like an image of someone just feeling around in the dark, right? We don't know what we're doing, right? But God has done that. He's planned that and purposed that so that you might find him. Now it starts, right, which is a good characteristic of God, that he is sovereign. He does whatever pleases him. No one can tell him anything. No one serves him, right? Then it goes into his sovereignty and the nations and the times and your own life. And then there's this truth that says he's done all this so that we could find him. And I love that Paul says, and you know what? He's very near to us. Just like your own poets have said, right, that we live and move and have our being in him. I love this truth because God is not far. God has not thrown history into existence, stepped back from a distance and said, work it out, right? God is very near to us. We are indeed his offspring. We are close to him. And I hope this encourages you. That God of a whole universe that has everything in his control is near to you. I know that some of you feel very distant from the Lord, very far from the Lord. And God says, I'm near. I'm near. And I planned it all that you might find me. And so it is. And so we should be encouraged. God not only exists in this sovereign, beautiful way, but he can be found. He can be treasured. It's good. Good thing of the gospel. Let's go on. Uh, The third thing is that God is the judge and the redeemer of the world. And this is where maybe we could say the more explicit gospel message comes in. Uh, But here's what he says, starting in verse 30. Um, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So I want you to feel the weight of where this is going, Okay. So he is saying, this God who has all power, all authority, all control, who has made the whole world by the word of his might, who has planned every nation, every ruler of every time, of every person in a sovereign way that they might find him. This huge God has fixed a day. It will not be moved where he will judge the world. He will judge you. God has fixed a day that you will be judged by him for what you did, how you felt about him, if you worshiped idols and not the true and eternal God. He has fixed a day in which you will be judged, which you will stand before him and you will give that account of your life. That's scary. 
It is a scary thing, right, to fall in the hands of a mighty God. And Paul is saying, he's not avoiding it. He's not dancing around it because it's uncomfortable. He says, God has fixed a day where this will happen. It will not be moved. You cannot change it like you can't change history. God has all control of the nations. You will be judged. And that sovereign Lord who can be found by his absolute grace has provided a resurrected substitute on your behalf. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would have been ludicrous to preach to the Athenians, a bodily resurrection, they would have had none of that. He said, because of that, we can be assured that we can face that judgment, right? This is the gospel message, right? That God, uh, even though we weren't deserving of his love and to be invited into him, we, we now can become children of God because of Jesus. But I, I feel like it begs the question, why in the world did Paul wait so long and give so little to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his gospel presentation? I think it was purposeful. And uh, Bob Thune, who's a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska, he preached on this several times to his church. This, this portion of scripture is one of his favorite. And I'm kind of not directly quoting him, but semi-quoting him. So don't judge me. It's roughly about the same. But he asked that question to his congregation. He said, uh, you know, why would God do that? Why would God give so little emphasis to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Isn't that the gospel, right? Uh, and he says this. He says, the need for a savior can only make sense in the context of who God is. The need for a savior can only make sense in the context of, of who God is. This is why we can't lead with where do you want to go or something like that, right? We got to start with the Lord. The whole gospel begins and ends with God. And this gives us true understanding of our need in him and the glory of him delivering us from his wrath and our condition. And so this is an important thing to consider about the gospel. So this, this, this sovereign, big, huge Lord is part of the gospel. We can't start anywhere else. If we're gonna preach the gospel to people, we gotta start with God, because why does it matter if not, right? Like that's great if we have a savior and some guy who lived and died for us, but what does it mean without the eternal God? being the orchestrator and planner and fulfiller of all of these things and all of his promises and all of the joys and grace that he invites us into. It makes sense in the context of who God is. He's a big God. He's a sovereign God. And he's a good God, right? It's in that context that the gospel is precious to us. It is in that context that the gospel makes sense. And it is in that context in which we believe in the gospel and find joy and peace in him. Now, um, we've got one more point, and we'll kind of read and conclude here. But in verse 32, it says this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Uh, so Paul went on from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also uh, were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so we see here, a few different reactions uh, to the gospel. And my, my point is simply that the gospel bears fruit. The gospel will bear fruit. As Pastor Fuller says in South Africa, who we partner with, Jesus is winning, okay? I mean, the gospel uh, is bearing fruit all around the world. But we see three different reactions here. Uh, the first one is some mocked him. We should expect that, okay? We should expect to be mocked. Some thought this was ridiculous, right? 
This is a fairy tale story. Like it can't be true. Others um, were curious, but not convinced, right? This sounds interesting. Maybe that might meet some of my needs. I want to hear more about this. And then others just believed, believed the gospel. See, we may think for the gospel to be effective, that it has to be inclusive to everyone, right? That's kind of at least what our culture says, right? If you want an effective gospel, it's got to say no one's wrong, everyone's right, God is love, so that must mean he's not going to punish anyone. Just come in, baby. Whatever you believe, it doesn't matter. You know, we're all going up the same mountain. Um, but the truth is the gospel is very exclusive. It's one God, one salvation, one mediator between God and man, one way to which you may enter the kingdom. And so it's inclusive in the sense that everyone's invited. Everyone's invited, but it's exclusive in the sense that there's one way to get there. There's one way to get there. And I just want to encourage you, like, don't be ashamed of that, right? But Paul in Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who will believe, right? He's not ashamed because it's power. He's not ashamed because the God behind the gospel is powerful and he will and he can save. Don't, don't be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed of the message. Yes, we want to be wise. We don't want to be offensive. We don't have to be. I don't want to be. But, but the gospel message must be offensive, right? And we see here that, that some mocked, some mocked. Others were curious, some believed. But the point in all of this is that the gospel bore fruit. It will be fruitful. There is absolutely no way you sharing the gospel will not be fruitful. It doesn't mean the person will be saved, right? That's in God's hands. We don't cause other people to be born. God causes us to be born again, right? That's how it works. That's what First Peter says. But we share the gospel in boldness and in truth. And I love too, because from what we can see, which is maybe reading too far into this, but from what we can see, uh, there were men and women that were saved. There was someone who was a, an elite Areopagite, an Athenian, uh, and then probably other people that were just, you know, happened to be there listening. And so once again, the gospel applies to all people at all times in any uh, economic class, in any race, in any language, in any, you name it, right? It applies everywhere and always. And so my encouragement this morning for us is before we do anything uh, about making the gospel unignorable is that we wouldn't ignore it this morning. Don't ignore the gospel this morning. You know, that thing that first came in your mind when we started talking about idolatry, you said, nope, not that, move that over. Not gonna talk about that one, right? We should face our idolatry and be provoked. I pray that the Holy Spirit, by God's word, would provoke us this morning to not be okay with our idols in the guise of Christianity or whatever you put there, right? But to be provoked to repent because God today, he says the time of ignorance is gone. Know the gospel, see the resurrected savior, run and repent from your idolatry and embrace the salvation of your God. So I pray there'd be repentance. I pray that we'd lay those idols at the feet of the Lord and say, God, I, I don't wanna love this anymore. And then I also pray that we be provoked for our city. We be provoked for our neighbors. Don't run inside to ignore your neighbor. Be provoked to talk to them about their idols, right? Be provoked for the world. God will do it with or without us. 
but by his spirit, he provokes us and he uses us and he moves us to preach the gospel. So Providence, may we, we, may we make the gospel unignorable in our hearts and in our city and to the rest of the world. So let's pray together. Um, you guys can stand and bow your heads with me and oh, we'll just ask the Lord to do these things for us because we need him. Let's pray together. Father, uh, you have absolutely no need for us. We tremble at that truth. You're not served by our good works. You're not served by our hands. You're not served by how righteous we are. You are simply served by yourself and yourself alone, and rather you serve us. And so God, in humility and in the hope of finding deep joy in you forever and ever. God, we confess our sin. We confess our idolatry. And God, we just pray, would you change our hearts? Like we prayed in the beginning, God, would we hear the gospel anew? Like it's the very first time we're believing. Would we be in awe of your power and your might and your judgment, yet comforted by your nearness and your willingness to offer your only son that we might be saved. God, you are all those things, and we worship all those things, and we long that your glory would cover the earth like water covers the seas. Would you use us as a church to make your gospel unignorable in our city and to the ends of the earth? God, we pray that you would do this in us. And we thank you for being so near and so gracious and so loving. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.